Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Sage Institute colleague, Ed Klass. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have one of the co-authors of the new book, Super Abundance, Marion Tupi. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron, and I can't wait to dive in. Let's just do this. This Let's is just great do material. It. Excellent. Marion has been on before, but Marion Tupi is the editor of humanprogress.org, which is a great website, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and co-author of The Simon Project. He specializes in globalization and global well-being and politics and economics of Europe and Southern Africa. He is the co-author of 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Needs to Know, which we talked with him about back in August of 2020 on episode 304, and also the co-author that book, Ronald Bailey, on episode 307. Uh, his new book is Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet with co-author Gail Poley. Marion Tupi, welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you very much. It's a delight. I can hear the pushback already, Marion. What are you talking about? We're at our carrying capacity. The BBC says we're going to need two Earths by 2030 to you know, provide all the resources that we need. How can you say infinitely bountiful? Well, the BBC says currently that we need 1.7 Earths to just uh, feed the number of people that we currently have. And that's obviously impossible because we only have one planet. So that's already false, right? <laughs> but <laughs> the point of the book is obviously to say um, we, are, we are really greatly indebted to the great Julian Simon, the economist from University of Maryland, and my much smarter predecessor as Cato's uh, senior fellow. Um, in saying that the that ultimately the the ultimate resource is the human brain, um, Thomas Sowell, another economist uh, uh, that is much underappreciated, um, likes to say that uh, humanity today has exactly exactly the same amount of resources that the caveman had, and the only difference between his standard of living and our standard of living is the knowledge that we have brought to bear on the resources that we have today, and that's the point is that the resources don't change. The, the number of atoms on the planet doesn't change. It's always the same. But we are able to have this magnificent civilization, which is so much richer than, than, than the Stone Age or the caveman, um, uh, whenever the caveman lived. So there is no reason to think that out of the finite atoms that we currently have, we cannot take it a step further and create an even more abundant civilization in the future. Yeah, so true. You know, you got my 42-year mentor, George Gilder, to write your foreword. And I was blown away when he posited his information theory of, you know, markets in his book, Wealth and uh, Wealth and Power, uh, or Wealth and Knowledge. And he said that wealth equals knowledge and growth equals learning. You've quantified that insight in this book. Yes, and I think that's part of the reason why George agreed uh, to write the foreword, and we are obviously very honored that he has done so. 
Um, so we have looked at uh, hundreds of commodities uh, going back to 1850. Um, in, in some places, uh, we looked at food, we looked at fuel, minerals, metals, even services. And what we found basically was that every 1% increase in human population reduces prices by 1%. And that tells us that uh, obviously uh, the, the, the human brain uh, plays a role that uh, every additional human being on earth comes with an empty stomach, but also a pair of hands and much more importantly with a brain that is capable to innovate, invent and take us, take us further. Yeah. And the other thing I really loved, and it's kind of a, it, it's a simple insight, but it's profound. It, if we can buy more with what we earn, then not only are we you know better off materially, but we're also smarter. That's where the knowledge equals wealth is. Yes. So the, the knowledge quantification basically comes from our use of time prices. Um, time prices basically tell you how long you have to work uh, in order to buy something and the greatness of time and i think that's george why george liked it is that time is an independent variable time does not change you to human perception or the environment time cannot be inflated in the way that for example dollars can be inflated you know part of the reason why we have so much contentious debates in the united states about our standards of living and what's happening in the economy today um you know what is the state of inflation uh, is it 10 percent? is it eight percent is it is what Biden says that it's zero percent um, is because nobody really because it's uncontentious. It's even contentious within the government how to measure inflation. But we sidestep inflation altogether. It doesn't matter to us whether the inflation is 10 percent or 100 percent. We just ask, what is the price of a good, say, a bag of potatoes in 1850 and how much were you making per hour uh, back then? And we compare it to 2022, and it's that ratio between the two, between the price and 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 your wage, that gives us the, the number of minutes or hours that you have to work. And if back in 1850 you had to work an hour to earn something, to, to be able to afford something, and now it's just 10 minutes, then that means you are much better off. And uh, basically, it's it's that it's that time which is which is a s synonym for knowledge. It's uh, it's we are we are measuring knowledge with time. Um, let me give you one example, and that is uh, China's performance uh, over the last forty years. So, um, so by our account, time prices in China over the last uh, forty years have dropped by ninety-seven percent, which means that the Chinese personal abundance has increased forty-fold, or three thousand nine hundred percent. But what that really means is that the Chinese standards of living have been improving at 10% uh, a year and doubling every seven years. So the Chinese in the last 40 years have experienced four doublings. That doesn't mean they are four, four times better off. That means that they are one, two, four, eight times better off than they were before. So basically by using these time prices, we are also able to, um, uh, we are also able to measure the, the speed of human knowledge. Uh, one last point on these time prices uh, is that the reason why they are superior to using nominal dollars or real dollars is that they allow us to account for innovation both in terms of what is happening to the production process, but also what is happening to the productivity of individual human being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a real price will only tell you whether 
oil is more expensive in dollars than what it was, I don't know, in 1960. But time price also tells you uh, how much your income has increased over that period of time. So innovation obviously is mirrored both in the prices of goods, but also in, in, in your wallet because you are becoming much more productive during your lifetime. And time price pulls all of this together to give you, to give you a much better sense of, of your flourishing. Yeah, Gilder calls money is tokenized time. And when I first saw him write that, you know, that Ben Franklin saying, oh, time is money. But Gilder says, no, no, money is time because time's the constant constraint for everybody. Elon That's Musk right. has got 24 hours and so do we. That's right. So and time is very egalitarian. Everybody has only 24 hours in a day. Uh, so, you know, if instead of eight hours a day that you have to work in order to get your evening meal, you only work now an hour or maybe 30 minutes, then obviously you have so much more time to spend it on other pursuits, such as reading a book or going on a holiday or spending it with your uh, with your family. So time is deeply egalitarian. It is objective. It is um, um, and, and, and it doesn't matter whether you live in, live in China or India or the United States, you don't have to use exchange rates to, to compare standards of living. Uh, you, you're not comparing rupees with, with American dollars or yuan. You are just looking at the Chinese man and an American man or a Chinese woman and an American woman. How long do they work in order to buy, I don't know, a pair of stockings or a blazer? Um, and uh, finally, another reason why time prices are so cool is that they allow you to see the uh, change in standards of living between two periods of time. So we can we can definitely compare the standard of living of an American worker in 1850 with an American worker today. And Mary, and you guys, you you for the uh, numerator, you've got uh, you know the, the 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 price, the nominal price of whatever nominal. it is. Yeah. And for the denominator, you've got the uh, average hourly wage. And you did that for blue collar workers and unskilled workers and what you call upskilling workers. And I'm just curious. I mean, that, that was fascinating. I like the way you do it because it's kind of conservative, isn't it? And, and I'm just wondering if you ever ran the analysis with um, average pay or even that of white collar people, would the results be dramatically different? We didn't for a couple of reasons. One is that we are doing, we are using measuring worth data, which is the standard data set for economic historians, a data set that takes us back to late 1700s. Hmm. So, um, so they don't have data for white collar workers. Um, so that that's part of the reason. There is data limitation there. Um, and and also the further back in time you go, the less meaningful it is to look at white collar workers because back then everybody was a either an unskilled laborer or a pro, or a production laborer or blue collar worker. You know, so so that's part of the reason. Secondly, we knew that if we use that data, the obvious rejoinder from any critic would be your data is being skewed by the rich people in this country. We are a very unequal country in terms of earning, therefore your data is meaningless. But by saying that an unskilled laborer, say a janitor, can now afford 53 pounds of pork for the same amount of time that he had to work in order to buy one pound of pork in, uh, say, 1850. That, that tells you how the worst uh, off in society are doing. And that's, to us, much more meaningful than, than looking at the average rates or white-collar workers. Yeah, you have some amazing statistics on this, like a pound of sugar in 1850. It took two hours and 50 minutes. And in 2021, it takes 
35 seconds of yeah, labor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sugar is one of the best performers. Uh, I know, you know, so often, often we get people say, oh, why are you using sugar? And it's just so incredible to think that, you know, people in, uh, in, in the 1800s had, you know, for, for the same amount of work, you can get 200 pounds of sugar that, that got you just one pound back then, you know. And, and, and so we looked at all sorts of things, all sorts of food items, but not just food items. Food items are interesting because people intuitively know that they need food in order to survive. But then we look at things like nickel and tin and aluminum and uranium. Why do we do that? Because that, 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 that's a natural resource that is supposed to be uh, finite. And in fact, all of that is, is coming down in prices. And, and all of these things, rubber, uh, are inputs in the production process. So the cheaper they get, um, the, the cheaper the outputs. And that's the key, is that even if you cannot eat them, even if you cannot comprehend why price of rubber should be, should be of interest to you, well, it is, interest, it is interesting or it should be interest, interesting to you because if you need new, um, uh, new tires on your on your car or your, or your bicycle, the cheaper it is, then the cheaper the output will be. Right. I mean, you, and one thing that really struck me was the housing. It, it took twenty three grand on average to buy a house in nineteen seventy, which was three point nine hours of labor for per square foot. But in two thousand nineteen, it's two point seven five hours per square foot because the houses have gotten bigger too. That's a decline of thirty percent. You talk to most people about housing, and they'll tell you it's outrageous. Nobody can afford it anymore. Yes, and they can they can look at that uh, in the BLS statistics. The, the BLS, um, the, the the government itself produces many of these statistics, and they show that housing is becoming more 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 expensive. Partly because, of course, the houses houses are larger, and the number of people who live in an average house in the United States is smaller than what it was in the 1970s and consequently the square footage per person has been declining in price now it has not been declining in sorry it has been uh, it, it has been uh, growing in price at a slower pace than wages this is the very this is very important you can get it mark perry from aei does this uh, uh, what is it the 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 chart of the century which shows you um um, which which uh, which things in America are getting more expensive than wages, and which things are, in America are getting less expensive than 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 wages. And the things which are getting more expensive than wages is um, things like healthcare, education, and childcare. And housing is actually getting less expensive than than wages, or rather, I should say, wages are increasing at a faster pace than housing. This is the important thing. It's also important to note that we are looking at an average house. So yes, if you are looking at housing in the the, the desirable metropolitan areas, you can still see that housing is unaffordable. But if you take just an average house sold in the United States in uh, say 2020, compare it to uh, say 1970 or 1960, it, it is cheaper. Or or at least it was cheaper when you combine it also with um, uh, with the interest rate and the uh, and the very low interest rate at which people could borrow money. Obviously, the global shutdown, the COVID pandemic, the, the breakup of the supply chains has have all resulted in housing becoming more expensive in the last two years. But the point of the book is that there is nothing. There is no physical limit on what we can produce. There is no physical limit um, on on these resources. There is no reason why we shouldn't build more uh, housing or uh, produce more stuff. The, these are policy decisions. Our housing could be much 
much less expensive if we didn't have nimbyism and other forms of policies which keep people from 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 building um what we are seeing currently in europe is another example of of a policy choice europe is suffering from climate but not climate change it is suffering from climate policies <laughs> right it is suffering from bad calls made by stupid politicians who have decided to ruin their own civilization um, that it has nothing to do with physical limits of the planet oh. Marion, this is great. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our new sponsor, Melio, uh, an accounts payable solution that both you and your clients are going to love. Go to melio.com slash TSOE to get started. And now a word from our sponsors. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit Melio.com slash accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And we are back on the Soul of Enterprise with the author of Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet, Marion Tupi. And Marion, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation with Ron, but you didn't ask, answer this, or he didn't ask you this question. What's superabundance? <laughs> <laughs> so superabundance... Um... Superabundance does have actually a technical meaning in, in the book. And really the first part of the book builds up to the moment where we show you what superabundance is. And for that, we need a, just a tiny bit of history. So uh, you all heard about Malthus. Uh, rather, all your listeners will have heard about Malthus, uh, English preacher, 1798. He publishes a very important book, uh, a very influential essay, rather, called On the Principle of Population. And basically what he says is that Population expands at a geometrical rate, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, whereas uh, food supply only increases at, at an arithmetical rate, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Therefore, population must unavoidably grow at a faster pace and uh and, and, and crisis ensues. Uh, your listeners will have heard about Paul Ehrlich and Population Bomb. Uh, he was sort of a neo-Malthusian, uh, very popular uh, in the 1960s and the 1970s, got on Johnny Carson 20 times, pu published a Population Bomb, 3 million copies sold, exactly the same argument, more people, less abundance, okay? So on the graph that we produce in the book, we have it divided into two parts. The bottom part is the Ehrlichian world where abundance is supposed to be shrinking. We are not in that world. None of our data points to a shrinking abundance. Once you get into the Simonian world where abundance is increasing, this is the relationship between, uh, this, is, this is basically the idea identified by Julian Simon. He basically says pop, uh, population will make resources increase in the long run. But, but resources can increase at two different speeds. I'll repeat that. Resources can, can increase at two different speeds, either lower than population rate or higher than population rate. So if population is increasing at 5% per year, but your abundance is only increasing at 2% a year, we call that just increasing abundance, right? Your slice of pizza is still getting larger, but at a slower pace than population. Superabundance happens when resources are becoming more abundant at a higher rate than population. So if population is increasing at 5%, but your personal abundance is increasing at 10%, that's what we call superabundance. And in the book, we look at 18 different data sets and all of them show themselves in the zone of superabundance. In all the cases that we looked at, um, abundance was growing at a faster pace than population. And that tells us really about the value on average of every additional human being. That tells us that human beings are creators, not just destroyers. And that in fact, on average, they create more than they consume or destroy. Well, you, you said this during the segment with Ron that you know a 1% increase in population yields a 1% increase in abundance. Is that, did I have that, that, that correct? Is that that's correct. That's that those are time prices, but then time prices need to be translated into abundance. And this is where you get into the funny world of mathematics. Let's say that you are buying an apple. Um, if the if if the time price of an apple increases by 100%, you now only get half an apple. What happens if the time price of an apple falls by 100%? You get infinite amounts of apples. Apples become free, right? So 
So translating time prices into abundance basically takes us into the world of declining uh, of, of negative values where things get really weird the closer you get to minus 90 or minus 99% because minus 50% will just get you two instead of one. Minus 75% will get you four instead of one. Minus 90% will get you 10 instead of one. And minus 100% will get you infinite uh, uh, instead of one. So... Um, so yes, uh, time prices are one thing. Uh, the relationship between population growth and time prices is very clear. Time, plus, time prices decline, uh, but with every percentage decrease in time price, the abundance increases uh, exponentially in accordance with the with the negative values and and the, the weirdness of mathematics. And and this I think led in, in my reading of the book to an extraordinarily extraordinary claim that you did a whole box on. I don't know whether it was, was you or Gail Pooley who wrote this, but it's how much more prosperous would the world be without China's one child policy? And th this is when we, Ron and I have a, a group on Patreon we mentioned earlier, and we talked about your book uh, with that group. And this, the, this person, one of the people who was listening said, I'm, I can't believe that that would be true. How could that possibly be true? So could you take us through that a little bit? Well, the, the, not everybody is an inventor. A very small fraction of humanity invents or innovates. This is important. Um, you know, it doesn't matter uh, how much you tell people they can invent or innovate. It doesn't matter what uh, propaganda you give them or how much you plead with them. It's only a small fraction of humanity that invents. And that's somewhere around between three and 6%, maybe 5%. Okay, let's assume that it's 5%. Well, 5% out of 14 million people who lived in the world at the time of the Bronze Age will get you a much smaller number of inventors than a population of 8 billion people who are alive today. If China had half a billion more people, then it would have 5% uh, of half a billion people would be still innovators and inventors, and they would contribute to increasing the stock of human knowledge and thereby not just make China more prosperous, but also the rest of us. Just, just an incredible claim. But I and, I and I was skeptical as I was reading that box, and then by the end, you had me, you had me convinced. So just, just brilliant stuff there. Um, what one thing I, I wanted to to ask you is is this, and there's only one negative review of your book on Amazon right now. It's a three star review, and is somebody complaining that it says it's a bestseller? That's that's <laughs> that's the only negative review. <laughs> But I want to want to ask you this. Surely there's going to be people coming after you to try to to uh, to take down your argument. Steel man, what you have heard, the best argument against what you guys are, are uh, advocating. What's the best argument against superabundance? Is there one? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's a steel manning. I, I, I think I think that it is a I think it's completely intuitive to think that because the number of atoms in the world are finite, therefore, a massive increase in population, let's say 12 billion, 16 billion, 100 billion people, um, that we would eventually run out of things. So, so right now, I haven't heard... Actually, let me get to, to, to one argument, which we can talk about in, in a moment. But, but the, the key here is that the number of atoms in the world may be finite, but they're, they're, they're not changing. They can be rearranged in different ways. So the copper, 
which uh, we are using in order to make phone calls, uh, you know, the copper cables or, or information. I see that copper as being just temporarily assigned to that specific task. But if we innovate a different way to communicate and send information, then all that copper can be simply reused for something more valuable. Right, so that copper hasn't gone anywhere. Now, if you want to be really pedantic, you what you could say is that we shot up a few tons of uh, steel or or iron or 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 plastic into the space, and therefore we have a little bit less atoms than we than we used to. But of course, by the time that that becomes a serious concern, our civilization hopefully will be so sophisticated that it will be able to pull meteorites from 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 uh, you know from space and and add it to our stock of atoms that we are currently using so the, the really the limitation on on um, uh, the limitation on uh, on 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 superabundance and on these atoms is our knowledge and that brings me to the great insight by uh, the nobel prize winning economist paul roma paul says uh, Paul talks about combinatorial revolution, right? And let's we ha we have to focus here because the numbers are really large. But basically, what he says is there are 100 elements in the periodic table. In order to produce a two-element compounds, you have to calculate 100 by 99, which means you have up to 10,000 combinations before you get to something as simple as bronze which is just copper combined with tin. And once human population came across this particular compound, bronze, copper and tin, um, uh, that changed civilization forever. We got the Bronze Age, we got the Homeric poetry, we got the war, uh, the, the Trojan War and the abduction of Helen and wh whatever else, right? Um, once you get to four element compounds, you have 94 million possible combinations. And once you get to 10 element compounds, which is to say 100 by 99, by 98, by 97, by 96, by 95, by 94, by 92, by 91, you have more possible combinations than the number of seconds since the beginning of the Big Bang 14 and a half billion years ago. And so what that tells you is that there is no way that there has been enough time on earth and enough people to just scratch the possibility of additional information that we are going to create over the succeeding centuries that we can come bring to bear on the atoms that we have, this periodic table, and derive much more, in fact, in fact infinite amount of value. That the infinite has a meaning in that book. It means that there is infinite amount of knowledge waiting for us, because once you get to combining 10 elements, then you could have 12 elements and up to 100 elements. By the time we are done with all the calculations of the possible combinations of elements in the periodic table, the sun will swallow us two times over. Now, we, we have encountered one negative, um, uh, sort of semi-negative, actually it was pretty negative review, and that was from Arnold Kling, who, who, who suggested based on a paper by Hotelling from 1932, that prices can be heavily influenced by, uh, by speculators, by market speculators. Um, and, you know, because, because they are holding onto some, some amount of, um, 
uh, of, of resources, um, and they are calculating, you know, how much they should keep, how sh they should bet against it, and so forth. And uh, we will publish a response to Arnold and, and all the other critics who come down the line in about six months. What we want to do is to focus on the promotion of the book. And then what we want to do is to write an essay where we actually respond to all of our critics. But I suspect that one answer to, to Arnold will be to say that the world has changed a great deal since 1932 when Hotelling published his paper. Uh, right now, um, the, 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 the market out there is just so much more sophisticated and it's filled with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are making bets on, on all sorts of, you know, on the future prices of commodities all over the place. They're not really thinking about whether commodities are becoming more expensive or less expensive, finite or less finite. What they are doing is arbitrage. They are looking for half a second uh, trades uh, with uh, with supercomputers, uh, you know, betting on on certain things without without having any conception whether things are going to be becoming more expensive or less. So, I'm just not convinced that there is as much to the criticism of the role of speculators in driving prices of commodities up and down as Arnold thinks. But it's certainly that was the only criticism that we have gone so far and we will address it in time. Another criticism that I can talk about is, of course, that some people have raised the issue that time prices, while being good, are not perfect because they cannot account for um, increase in quality. And we agree with that. Um, you know, uh, you know if, if, if the quality of your iPhone changes over a decade, then comparing iPhone 14 or 16 or 20, whatever it is right now, with iPhone 1 is comparing apples with oranges. And um, this is true. Time prices cannot account for that, but neither can any other price in existence. Nobody knows how to how to really properly, with precision, um, estimate the difference in quality between a fridge in 2022 as opposed to one in 1956. Sure. So, so there are there are some limitations like that. There are criticisms out there, and we will be addressing them uh, when time permits. Yeah, but that, with that last criticism, though, it's only going to help your argument because <laughs> it goes goes the other way. Uh, but we are up against our, our break. Want to remind you, contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our show is also, we also have a Patreon channel uh, where you can hear our show commercial free as well as our bonus episodes that we normally record after each show. That uh, Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. If you need a mind, get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. 
look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial free version of this show and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Marion Tooper, uh, Marion Tupi, one of the authors of Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Ed and I believe, Marion, that you guys deserve a Nobel Prize for this book. I, I, I think it's a new economics. It's a new way of thinking about everything. And one of the things that you start out with and you discuss, and I really enjoyed the discussion, why is it that pessimism seems to be the default among humans, we, we cling to pessimism. Yeah, so uh, people smarter than me, people like Steven Pinker and evolutionary psychologists have pointed out to the fact that we have evolved to be pessimistic. Um, uh, you know, an, an underreaction to a potential threat uh, is much more costly than an overreaction to a potential threat. So let's think about a bush and the rustling behind the bush. Um, you know, if it's just the wind, no problem. If it's a tiger, serious problem. So if you underestimate the, the potentiality of, of the threat, such as a tiger hiding behind a bush, um, you're an optimist, then you get eaten and weeded out of the gene pool. On the other hand, if you overreact to a potential threat and run away from that rustling bush, even though there is nothing behind it, you get to live another day and pass your genes down to future generations. Um, so there are all sorts of different uh, negativity biases in our brain. This is just one of them. But, you know, bad is always stronger than good. We feel slights and criticisms much more than than we feel praise and successes. Uh, good things happen incrementally over long periods of time, whereas bad things happen instantaneously. You know, it may take you 18 years of education to get to a point where you are a specialist in something, but it takes half a second for you to get killed in a car crash and things like that. Um, the other problem that we are facing, I think, is that for the longest time, our species was not numerate. Um, we passed information via stories, stories which we shared around the fireplace for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions of years. I don't know when human speech started, but let's assume that it started, in, I don't know, um, 500,000 years ago. And I'm really just coming up. I'm just pulling this out. Um, uh, but but uh, for, for most of that time, we were sharing stories. Um, and um, and not statistics. We are numerate for maybe 100, 150 years um, in, in the West, uh, in, in the rest of the world, even less than that. And so statistics do not grab us uh, with the same emotional intensity than stories. You know, there is always a story about a single mother take, who is unemployed, taking care of children somewhere in the Midwest, and she's hooked on drugs, and that's a horrible story. Um, you know, but it is a story which will grab our attention because we can empathize with that. But if I were to tell you that stories like that are small 
uh, as, as a fraction of the American population. Um, you know, if I can show you with statistics that those stories are very, very, um, uh, not, not, very uh, not very numerous, um, that will have less of an emotional impact on you. So there are a lot of reasons why we would, why, why we, we would react to this, to this period of superabundance um, in, in ways that you describe. You know, you point out just a litany of things that have gotten better, poverty, life expectancy, maternal mortality, nutrition, clothing, child labor, worker safety. I mean, all of these things. I'm, I mean, I realize they improve incrementally, and maybe that's part of the reason, too. We just don't see it as much as we see the disasters. But I, I look at this list and think and hear the critics say, yeah, but that's not everything. That's not ev what, what constitutes human flourishing. Well, no, but like you say, it's a start. And it's a start. And if you and don't if have you these have, things, you're you're really in a bind. Yeah, and and people can do with superabundance whatever they want to. I mean, you know, um, if, if they have an extra two hours or five hours in in their day when they don't have to work, uh, some people can use it smartly. Uh, such as reading a book, listening to your podcast, um, spending time with their families, uh, overseeing the education of their children, or they can spend it um, in a basement somewhere smoking pot and uh, watching uh, some damas show. Um, you know, it's, it's up to them. We cannot account for people's choices. Uh, you know, if they want to spend their time in a stupid kind of way, then, then that's their business, not ours. What Superabundance shows you is that you have to work less and less in order to buy the basics. What you do with that time that you have now saved is up to you. Right. I, I think you're putting your finger on some of what Nicholas Eberstadt writes about and men without work. You know, he talks about that, that 7 million men, prime age, working age, not in the labor force. Well, we can afford it. Yeah. Than... And, but we shouldn't, but we shouldn't encourage it. I wonder to what extent a lot of people didn't come back into the workplace, partly because they saved up so much money during the COVID pandemic or, uh, you know, what is it about our welfare state that keeps people at home rather than uh, sending them to work? Uh, you know, people, people constantly talk about America as not having a sufficient welfare net. That's nonsense. We are spending more on welfare as a percentage of our GDP than Canada does. And Canada is hardly, you know, a land <laughs> strewn with dead bodies of poor people. You know, so we are spending a lot of money, but are we spending it smartly? Are we spending it in such a way that brings people back into the work environment or not? And work is very important. Part of the reason why I'm no longer a supporter of UBI, uh, that was a huge change in my thinking, is because mm -hmm. I no longer consider work uh, to be uh, simply a way to earn money. I think that being employed and working is also a way of having a structure in your life, uh, a way of, of having a meaning in your life. Right. Er, that earned success is really important. Earned success. And, yeah. We can't measure it. Dignity doesn't show up on the, the spreadsheet. Uh, you also talk about inequality in the book and Gini coefficients and uh, superabundance kind of knocks down this argument too, doesn't it? Well, one example that we use is, um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, we don't measure Lamborghinis, we don't measure, you know, yachts and things like that. What we measure is a bushel of wheat, uh, a bag of oranges, a bag of potatoes, rice, things that uh, ordinary people eat uh, throughout the world, not just here in the United States, you know, and if those are coming down in prices, then then we are all better off. But when it comes to time inequality, one example that we use is, is, a, is a true example, 
um, if you go to a properly poor country, people have to work an entire day in order to earn enough money to buy one meal in the evening. Uh, one reason why in Brazil, for example, they didn't shut down the economy during COVID is because there are tens of millions of people who are day, day laborers. They have to work eight days in order to get enough money to buy their food in the evening. So one, one example that we have is we compare time inequality of Raj in India and Ray in Indiana. So Raj in India in 1960 had to work eight hours in order to buy his daily meal, whereas Ray in Indiana in 1960 had to work only one hour to buy his daily meal. Okay, by the time you get to 2020 or 2018, uh, Ray, uh, sorry, Raj in Indiana, instead of working eight hours or seven hours a day to buy his daily meal, he now only works an hour. Ray in India, his um, time uh, of work has declined from one hour to seven minutes. So who is better off? In some ways, Ray is better off because he now works only seven minutes, whereas Ray in uh, whereas Raj in Indiana has to work an hour. But looking at it from another from another perspective, Raj has gained seven hours of free time, whereas Ray has only gotten fifty three minutes of free time. Um, you know, so that shows you how this inequality has actually decreased tremendously around the world because people in poor countries, by seeing basic commodities declining price, have gotten many more hours. Uh, of their day when they don't have to work but can do other things or they can work on something else instead of working just for the daily meal maybe they can buy textbooks for their children or send them to a school and marion i you talk a lot about population obviously in the book because it's about superabundance. aren't free markets the best birth control out there i mean it seems to me like the the, the uh replacement rate is dropping you know the birth rate is dropping below replacement in these countries that are becoming wealthier and yes, uh, yes. One of the staggering things which you found, for example, although I don't think it's made it into the book, is that birth rates in Hong Kong have fallen as much as they have fallen in China under the one child policy. Wow. In other words, wow. Hong Kong, by growing massively economically, has seen uh, well, has seen a tremendous increase in opportunities and women entered the workplace being able to earn a lot of money. And so they are having fewer babies, whereas in China, uh, which was still very poor when they implemented uh, one child policy. Uh, all those children that the state didn't want had to be drowned in buckets uh, or, or or strangled or or, or killed um, through or killed through abortion, late term abortion. So so yes, as a general rule, um, population declines as opportunities increase. So then the follow-up question, which maybe I'm preempting it, but the follow obvious follow-up question is, well, how many people do you want in the world? Uh, and, and what I'm saying is that I have no, you know, I certainly don't want people to have babies they don't want. People should have as many children as they want. And based on those preferences, we are going to end up with a size of the population that suits the personal preferences of people who inhabit it. What worries me and why the book was written in part is that parental choices are not made in a vacuum. They are impacted by much more than personal choices of women in the marketplace. They are impacted by such things as doom and gloom, by the vision on the extreme environmental side of things that humanity is a cancer upon the planet. They are influenced by such things as a belief that 
that bringing a child into the world is an act of ultimate selfishness. Bringing a child to the world is 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 horrible because their their futures are going to be terrible and so forth. And to the extent that this Malthusian slash apocalyptic viewpoint has overtaken our intellectual space, that zeitgeist is anti-human, anti-natalist. What we are saying, no way. Um, have as many babies as you want or none at all. Just don't listen to the doomsters because because they are not making any sense. Amen. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, thank you so much, Marion. This has been such an honor. Maybe we can get Gail Pooley on. We will continue to promote this book and spread the word. It's just a fantastic work. And folks, if you'd like to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now a word from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise talking superabundance with Marion Tupi. And Marion, I hope that, you know, someday to say uh, Nobel Prize winning Marion Tupi, because I think that this this stuff is just absolutely great. It is it, it literally a page turner as you're building your case. It's layer by layer. You turn the page and it just explodes out at you. I just, just so th- thank you so much for, for this contribution. Um, I, we, we have a relatively short segment here. So I, I do want to ask you this question. Um, we have Nick Eberstadt coming on and he's written re- recently updated his book men without work uh and one of i've heard him he's actually uh, on podcast right now with jonah uh, goldberg and they brought you up 
And one of the conversations they had was, is, is it possible that superabundance will lead to what he said, sloth? <laughs> I would love to know what Nick answered before my answer, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up. Uh, Nick is Nick is absolutely brilliant and such a lovely man. So I'll need to listen to that podcast. Um, look, if you are looking at the United States in isolation, then uh, you can get worried because, or you you should be worried because our employment rate as a percentage of labor force is heading towards 60%, which is ridiculous. And maybe you can play off that to say, well, is it because the United States is so rich that people no longer have to work? You know, But then you look at international statistics and something absolutely astonishing emerges, which is that the uh, employment, uh, employment rate, labor force participation rate in Switzerland is 85% and Switzerland is a richer country than we are. So here you have, so, so, so these numbers are not, not equivalent across the West. All of us are rich in comparison to the past, but if 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 increasing GDP per capita uh, was leading to us abandoning uh, abandoning any kind of work ethic, then you would see that being uh, being that happening around the world, and that's not what we are seeing in Sweden and in Britain. Labor force participation rate is about 70, 75%, which is already 10 points higher than here. And in Switzerland, as I said, it's somewhere between 83 and 85%. So that can be it. I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that we are so rich where we no longer want to work. In addition to that, I think that human needs and human desires are infinite. Part of the reason why we are measuring abundance but not scarcity is because there will always be scarcity uh, just when you get accustomed to flying around the world to Mauritius or Tahiti for a holiday you know the next step will be going on a holiday to the moon and if in 50 years time you know you cannot afford to go to the moon for a for a long weekend maybe that will be seen as uh, you haven't made it <laughs> in this world uh, I'm obviously picking up from the air a ridiculous example but the point is that always people have infinite number of desires uh, for which they will have to work and earn, earn money. And we only have about uh, three minutes left. And at, I really like the innovation model that you guys put together as well. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant chapter as well. One point you say, committees don't have ideas, but yet you also say innovation begins with cultural capital. So square, square those, there's a nuance there, I know. Square those two ideas. Well, by cultural capital, we just basically mean what sort of a culture you live in, what sort of a world you live in, what, what your society is like. You know, if if Steve Jobs, his father, didn't leave Syria, uh, we wouldn't have the, um, you know, we wouldn't have the Apple Corporation and the amazing things which that corporation has accomplished. So by moving from a society uh, which doesn't value culture, the, the cultural capital, um, or a culture which doesn't value human capital, to a to a culture which values human capital, such as the United States or parts of Western Europe, then then of course you are getting ahead. But but Steve Jobs, once he got here, he didn't come up with his product uh, as a result of getting together with ten or fifteen people and then uh, you know buy a vote. Uh, decide this is the way we should go forward. He was a genius who, uh, who, who, who forced his way, who was pedantic and obsessive about the most minor details of what the iPhone should look like and also what the packaging should, should look like. So 
in that sense, it was his ideas within the cultural milieu of freedom and entrepreneurship, which the United States provides. Well, we've got about one minute left. So I just want to throw something at you. We talked about how the population was growing uh, arithmetically. Uh, the the uh, other one would would, would grow um, uh, geometrically. Is it, is it? Could we say that abundance grows exponentially? That <laughs> uh, abundance can abundance can grow exponentially, provided that uh, we retain this this culture of entrepreneurship. Uh, provided that we create much more computing power, even maybe AI, then it could grow exponentially. Uh, one problem could be if we have a global depopulation, something that uh, Elon Musk keeps warning about. If that happens, then exponential growth of the economy is probably not going to happen. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Marion. Uh, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to talk to David Leary and how Six Sigma ruined a company that he used to work for. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait to hear about that. See you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will have full, full show notes of our uh, discussion with Marion today, where you can get his book, uh, the Cato event. We'll link to that, that they did on the book, which is phenomenal. And also, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to ask, tsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.